Now, friends, we've come to the new section in 1 John. In fact, we've come to the last major division of this very wonderful little book. We've come to chapter 5. And if you have your Bible there, I'm sure you've turned to this place. We have seen in the first part, God is light. Then we have been in that very extensive center section that ended with chapter 4, God is love. Now, the subject is God is life. And this is divided into two separate sections, that is, chapter 5. We have in the first five verses, victory over the world. And then, from verses 6 through 21, assurance of salvation. Now, he begins this chapter like this. And remember, it's victory over the world that he's talking about for the believer. And the world here again is the cosmos world. That is, the world with all of its organizations, all of its governments, all of its selfishness, its greed, its sorrow, its sickness, its awful sin. And the child of God is to have a victory right down here over the world. And that is possible for him. He says, "...whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begot loveth him also that is begotten of him." Now, this is a very important section that we've come to. God is life, and that life comes through being born of God. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, that means this is the method, that whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ. And John actually opens his gospel like that. You remember in the first chapter down about verse 11, he makes it very clear there that it is faith and actually just simple faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to them gave he the power, the exousion power, the right or the authority to become the sons of God, even to them that don't do any more nor less than just simply believe on his name. And that means that when you trust Christ, you trust who he is as well as what he did, because what he did has no value if he's not who he said that he was. And again, I say that the virgin birth is very essential. Who is this that died for the sins of the world? It wasn't an ordinary man that did that, because an ordinary man would be sinful himself and could not even die for his own sins. That is, die in the sense he'd have salvation. He'd die in a judgment death and eternally separated from God. Now, here he makes it very clear that whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. 
In other words, it's faith that produces the new birth. And now that he's born again, how does he know that he's been born again? Does he have some great overwhelming experience? Does he enter some ecstatic state? No, not necessarily. Some people do, I'm told, and I suppose it's all right, but that's not the usual procedure. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begot loveth him also that's begotten of him. Now, when you trust the Lord Jesus Christ, you're born again, and God becomes your heavenly Father. And he is God the Father, and he becomes your heavenly Father. Now, if he's your heavenly Father, and you're begotten of him, you love him. But it doesn't stop there. It means also that you're going to love the one that's begotten of him. In other words, you're going to love other of God's little children. Now, he said this before, and John never said that this was something new with him. He said, this is what we've heard from the beginning, that we were to love one another. And the Lord Jesus said, "...by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples." if you have love one for another. And this expression here, born of God, is very, very important. It hasn't anything to do with the fact that you have joined the church, and I hope you have if you were born of God. And it hasn't anything to do with the ceremony, but if you're born of God, I hope that you've gone through a ceremony. And it doesn't mean that you follow a ritual, because that doesn't mean that you're a child of God. But the important thing is, are you born of God? And if you've been born again, and you're born again when you trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, and the proof of it is, you're going to love God. You love your Father. He begot you. And you're going to love the other children of God, because they are your brothers and sisters. Now, he has been giving to us all through this epistle, and it is the epistle of how you can have the assurance of your salvation. And here are some of the marks, some of the evidences that you're a child of God. He says back in the second chapter, verse 29, and I think I probably ought to just turn to that. He says, If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. And so, to practice righteousness in your life, that doesn't mean that it's the unusual thing or the abnormal thing that one day you practiced it, but it means that it is the practice of your life. That doesn't mean that you don't slip and fall sometimes, but the practice of your life. And then the second is, he does not practice sin. And that's in the third chapter, verse 9. Whosoever is born of God doth not practice sin. That means to live in it, to revel in it, to make it your life. The lifestyle of the sinner 
is sin. He lives in it all the time. You don't expect him to do differently. And many of us did that until we came to Christ. Now, he's to love other Christians. And we're told that in verse 7 of chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. That's another test that'll give assurance to you. And that is that you'll love other Christians. Now, the fourth is you'll overcome the world. And we're going to come to that. We haven't come to that yet. That'll be down here in verse 7. And I'm going to reserve that till we get to it. And the fifth one, he keeps himself from Satan. And we're going to get that in this chapter also, verse 18. So you see, two of the evidences, two of, as someone has put it, the birthmarks of a child of God, two of the five are right here in this chapter. Now, that's going to make this chapter rather important. And again, John is going to emphasize certain tests of true sonship here, which is love and obedience and truth. No one can quarrel with these words, love, obedience, and truth being the mark of the child of God. Now, he says here in verse 2, "...by this we know that we love the children of God." when we love God and keep His commandments. Now, what do we mean here by His commandments? Well, the commandments, as I understand it here, are not referring to the Old Testament law at all. They are the commandments the Lord Jesus gave when He was here. And we found not ten commandments, but about 22 in the fifth chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. These are commandments. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, these are the commandments for believers today. And every child of God wants to keep these commandments. In other words, it is a practice of his life. This is something that he desires to do. It's something that he wants to do. It's something that he longs to do. Now he says in verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not... And the New Schofield Bible has changed it to burdensome. Well, I'm not going to quarrel with that, because it's a good translation but the literal is really heavy. His commandments are not heavy. It doesn't really mean that they are difficult to keep, but rather that they do not impose a burden when they're kept. In other words, what he's saying here is something that the child of God wants to do, you see. And it's something that he wants to practice and it's not difficult for him to do these things at all. Let me illustrate that. It's like the little girl that was carrying a big, heavy baby. And when she passed a group of folk, one of the ladies said, "'Little girl, isn't that baby too heavy for you?' And she says, "'No, he's my brother.'" <laughs> 
makes all the difference in the world, you see, when he's your brother. His commandments are not grievous. The whole point is this. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not heavy. They impose no burden on us because of the fact that we're keeping them now through love. The story is told about a man and his family years ago in a covered wagon drove into a little town in Oklahoma. And they said to the man that was running the store, he was sitting out on an apple box out on the front of the store. And this man said to him, what kind of town is this here? And the store man said, well, what kind of town did you come from? Oh, he said, we came from a wonderful town. Everybody there seemed to know each other and they seemed to care about each other and had a concern for each other. They were very wonderful people. We really hated to leave, but we wanted to move west, and we just wondered about where to settle down. What kind of a town is this? And the storekeeper says, well, this is just the kind of town that you left. It's that kind of a town. man says, I think maybe then we'll attempt to settle here. And they drove down a little ways and stopped their team and got out. And then in a little while, another covered wagon drove up in front of this little store. And when they drive up that close, it was a traffic jam in those days in the little town. And so the man asked that was driving this covered wagon, he says, what kind of town is this? And so the storekeeper again says, what kind of town did you leave? Well, he says, we were glad to get away from it. Says some of the meanest people there, I think, that I've ever met. And they were never very neighborly or very helpful. We never had any friends there, so that's the reason we left. And so the storekeeper says, I think you're going to find this the same kind of town. Says, we're the same kind of people. And the man says, well, I better drive on. So he drove on. And a citizen of the town who was sitting there with the storekeeper says, wait a minute here. He says, what do you mean you gave these two men two different viewpoints of the town. And the man says, I've learned that whatever town you come from will be the kind of town that you're going to go to. May I say to you that child of God ought to recognize that today he is not to be looking for somebody to do something for him, but he's to express that love in real action. And he is to express his love in a real concern for others. In other words, he's talking about here the fact that if you love the Lord Jesus and you love your heavenly Father, you're going to love other believers and you're going to find that his commandments about loving believers, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, you have love one to another, you'll know that you are keeping his commandments, and there won't be any burden to you at all. The Lord Jesus, you remember, said, My yoke is easy, my burden is light. It'll be heavy unless you really have that real love for the Lord and really want to serve him. Church work never becomes difficult until then. I'd like to close with this little story of Dr. Ironside. Now, you've heard me tell several of his I heard him teach First John when I was in seminary. 
he taught that to us. And he was talking to a man one time. He says, you know, I think that the church is wasting its money on missions. And there was an old gentleman sitting near, and he interrupted. He says, pardon me, did I understand you to say that you felt like they were wasting money on missions at church? He said, yes. He says, well, what do you know about it? Well, a man said, I spent five months in India, and I didn't see a missionary the whole time I was there. And so this old gentleman there says, by the way, what took you out to India? Well, he says, I went out there to hunt tigers. Well, he said, did you see any tigers? He says, I saw scores of them. Well, the man says, you know, that's interesting. He says, you went out to India to hunt tigers, and you hunted tigers, and you found a lot of them. Well, he says, I'd like for you to know that I spent 30 years in India, and I never saw a tiger, but I've seen hundreds of missionaries. May I say to you, it's on what you're looking for, you see. Are you today concerned, friend, about God's work and God's Word of getting it out? Great many people say, well, I don't see that much progress is being made. Well, friends, you just don't happen to be where the action is. The Word of God is going out today, and it's having its effect in hearts and lives, and that's very important. Now, he says here in verse 4, and I'm just going to be able to get my foot in the door, verse 4, for whatever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Now, what is it that overcomes the world? Faith. And that's the only way in which you and I will be able to overcome this world around. The world, as someone has said, is too much with us. And we're in the world, we're not to be of it. But this world that you and I are in today is a pretty big, mean, bad world. And you can be caught up in it very easily. You can be trapped by it. And we're going to see next time, what is the victory that overcometh the world? We've said faith, but how does it operate? Now, there is faith that saves us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a faith that will give us a victory over the world. We'll see that next time. Until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved. Now, today our text begins with the fourth verse here of the fifth chapter of First John, and I hope you have our notes and outlines. And we see here in the first section, victory over the world in the first five verses. Now, we got down here to verse 4, and I'm going to begin by reading it. For whatever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Now, I feel like that this is a very important verse that we have here. And he mentions victory. This may seem strange to you since we hear so much about that word in the Christian life today. This is the only time that this word occurs in the New Testament. And what is the victory here that overcometh the world? Well, it's our faith. 
And it is faith that saves us, and it is faith that keeps us. We are saved by faith. We walk by faith. We are born children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Now we have an enemy. We've talked about this enemy before. Love not the world, the things that are in the world. And there is in the world that which is of the flesh, that which is the worldly things, and that which is of the devil. All of these are in this big bad world that you and I live in. Now, there is an illustration of this back in the Old Testament that I think might be helpful to us at this point. You remember when Joshua entered the promised land. Now, the promised land is not a figure of heaven. These songs that talk about Canaan being heaven and the place that believers are going, that just doesn't fit in to the way God has given it to us. Actually, Canaan represents the place where believers ought to be living down here. Now, we can live out in the wilderness, and there are a lot of wilderness believers today. And they don't have any fun at all. They think they do at times, but they generally find out they don't. There's no fun out in the wilderness. The wilderness march wasn't easy. But in the land of Canaan, that's where we are blessed with all spiritual blessings. Now, when Joshua entered the land, it wasn't handed to him on a silver platter. And if you and I today are to enjoy the spiritual blessings that are ours, we've got to recognize that we have a battle to fight, that the enemy holds the territory and he's just not going to let us have any kind of a deliverance or victory. Now, when Joshua entered the promised land, there were three enemies that stood before him, and until he overcame them, he was not able to take the land. The first enemy was Jericho. That was the first place that he struck. It was obvious what he was trying to do is to split the land into two divisions and then take one at a time which he attempted to do. Then the second enemy was little Ai. And I should say that Jericho represents the world. Little Ai represents the flesh. Joshua just sent a small contingent up there, thinking it'd be easy to take. And that's the one place he received a telling defeat. And a great many Christians today overcome the world, but they always get overcome by the flesh. In other words, there are many saints today that don't engage in worldly practices, but they sure go to church and gossip. They indulge the flesh, and they can blow the trumpet around Jericho, but they don't blow the trumpet around Ai. And then there were the Gibeonites, and they represent the devil. They deceived. They worked wildly. They deceived Joshua, and the devil was a liar from the beginning. Now let's come back here to verse 4 and look at that in reference to Jericho. For whatever is born of God overcometh the world. You're a child of God. Why are you going to overcome the world? And how will you get it? This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Now, it's not by fighting, but by faith. 
Now let's look again at Jericho. How in the world did this man, Joshua, overcome Jericho? Jericho was the enemy that was out in front of him. And he had to take that city. And how is he going to take this city? By fighting it? He did not fight at all. God told him what to do. And God told him, he said, Now, I don't want you to make an assault upon the city. I don't want you to use a battering ram to try to get through the gate. The thing that I want you to do is to march around the city. And instead of putting your elite army up in front, the Marines are the special guards, you put the priests up there with the ark. They will also carry the shofar, the horns, and they'll blow the horns. The trumpets will be blown as they go around the city, and you're not to make an attack upon it. Well, that was the most unusual method, and I'm sure that the city of Jericho braced itself for the onslaught of these people who'd crossed the Jordan River at flood stage, which seemed to them an impossibility, and it was a foreboding of things to come. But they were going to defend themselves, and the city of Jericho was shut up. And I think the guard up on the gate gave the signal. It says, here they come, the whole army of Israel. And they marched up to the gate, and there was an army, you must remember, on the inside waiting for them. And they had them there ready. But when the children of Israel got up there, it was right face, and they kept marching. And they marched around the walls of the city. And when they did that, they went back into camp. Well, you could be sure of one thing. There was a meeting of the general staff in the city of Jericho that night to try to figure out the strategy that these people were using against them. And so they got ready for the next day, and the guard on the gate yelled down. He said, here they come. And they braced themselves for the battle if they tried to break through the gates. And there were soldiers on top ready to pour boiling oil or boiling water down on them and shoot arrows if they attempted to come. But they didn't attempt to come. They went around the city again. Now, they did that six days, and by that time, the staff, the army staff inside of the city of Jericho was just about crazy. They didn't know what in the world was taking place. But on the seventh day, when they went around one time, the general staff heaved a sigh of relief and says, it just looks like they're not going to take the city. They're just doing something very crazy. And from the world's viewpoint... It was very crazy, but must say that's an unusual strategy. But this time the guard says, wait a minute, they're not returning to camp, they're marching around again. And they did that seven times. And then what happened? Well, they blew the trumpets, children of Israel did, and the walls of Jericho fell down. And when the walls of Jericho fell down, Then the children of Israel, you must remember, they probably completely encircled the city, and the army on the inside had just about given up to try to follow them around, and they were certainly taken by surprise. Now, how did the children of Israel take the city of Jericho 
by fighting? No, they did not fight at all. They were marching around according to the orders, not given by Joshua, but of that unseen captain of the hosts of the Lord. And frankly, I've always had a problem with that until a few years ago, and it wasn't that the walls of Jericho fell down. I think they pretty well established that. But the thing that has disturbed me in the past, doesn't today, is the fact, why would a man of Joshua's ability, evidently a proven ability as a military leader, why in the world would he use tactics like that? Somebody says, well, God commanded it. Yes, but I think that he might have disagreed with the tactics. But you remember that incident when Joshua saw the man with the drawn sword at the edge of the camp, and he went out, and he said to the man, if you want it in good old Americana, it would be, what's the big idea? Who told you to draw a sword? And the question was, are you for us or our adversaries? That's the way our translation gives it to us, and it's a good one. But it means, what's the big idea? Who gave you an order to draw a sword? Because Joshua thought he was in charge. But when that one turned, he saw that it was a supernatural person. Now, I personally believe that was none other than the incarnate Christ. And so when he turned and saw him, Joshua fell at his feet. So this man Joshua now learned a lesson. He was not really in charge, and GHQ was not in his tent, but it was in heaven, and the captain of the hosts of the Lord. And that's what this one said, "'Nay, but as the captain of the hosts of the Lord am I now come.'" In other words, this battle you are fighting, it's a spiritual battle as well as a physical one, and I'm the captain." And so General Joshua now is going to take his orders from the captain of the hosts of the Lord. And this captain says, march around the city. Now I don't have any trouble with Joshua. If you'd have met him and said, why in the world are you doing this crazy thing? Now, I think he would have agreed with you and said, say it is crazy, isn't it? But he says, after all, I'm just taking orders. And if you've ever had any army experience, you know that actually, that a buck private never talks to a captain. That is, when the captain says, you go do this, he doesn't stop and say, the private doesn't say, well, captain, I've been thinking this over myself, and I think there's a better way of doing it. Did you ever hear of a buck private say that to the captain? No, sir. He says, yes, sir, I'll go do it. And he goes and does it, whatever the captain's commanded. Some fellas got in trouble in a camp. It was National Guard camp where I was, and they slipped out during the night. And so the next day, the captain gave them an order to dig a hole. And he says, and I want this hole, I want it six feet long, I want it three feet wide, and I want it five feet deep. And these fellas did it, went in and reported to the captain. The captain came out and looked at the hole. He says, now I want you to fill it back up with the dirt. And they had to fill it back up. That's sort of crazy. But they're obeying orders. Joshua's obeying orders. He's being obedient. He believes the captain, and we read in the New Testament in Hebrews 11, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down. 
It was by faith they fell down, you see. It wasn't by fighting, but by faith the walls of Jericho fell down. Now, what's the lesson for us today? Do you think that you can overcome the world by fighting it? That's one reason that, as a pastor, I never engaged in any reform movement, no matter how worthwhile it was, and even many of them that I agreed that were good. But I never would be on the committee, nor would I have part in it as a pastor of a church, because I don't think I was called to get in that at all. You don't overcome the world by fighting it. I know an ex-movie star many years ago, 20-some-odd years ago, called me when I was a pastor in downtown Los Angeles and asked, would I serve on a committee? It was a committee to help reform downtown Los Angeles. Now, downtown Los Angeles needed reform, and then it still does. But I never felt I was called to do that. And I refused to serve on the committee. She couldn't believe it. She said, you mean to tell me that you won't serve on the committee? And I said, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. She says, aren't you the pastor of the church? I said, yes. And as a preacher, you're not interested in that? I said, I didn't say that. I just won't serve on the committee. And she said, why? And I told her this little story. I said, the reason I won't serve is this. The Lord called me to fish in the fish pond, but he never told me to clean up the fish pond. So my business is fishing, giving out the Word of God. And I let the Spirit of God do any cleaning up that's to be done. That's the department he's in. And I'm not in that department by any means. Well, she didn't like it, but she had to accept it, of course. But I felt that today... I don't fight the world. I'm not in this great Reformation movement they talk about today. I'm not trying to straighten up our government, and I think it needs straightening up. I think both Democrats and Republicans are in a shambles today, and we are without, as a nation, we are without leadership throughout the world. I I recognize all of that, but that's not my business. My business is to give out the Word of God. And Joshua's business, though he had the army, his business was not to fight. His business was to believe God. And he believed God. And the walls fell down. And friends, today we are saved by faith. And if we're going to overcome this world, we'll not overcome it by fighting it. We're going to overcome it by faith. That's the only way that you and I can deal with this world that we're in. And I think that's the great message that is here. Now he says in verse 5 here, Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Now here we have faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in the future, that he's going to be the one that's going to overcome. And then we have here verse 6, This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. Now, here you have faith in Christ for salvation. Here and now, 
for the world and for the one who is the believer who will trust Christ. He's saved now. How? Well, this is he that came by water and blood. Now, I think that the reference is back in the 19th chapter, I guess it is, of John's gospel. At verse 34, you remember John was present at the crucifixion of Christ, and he says this is what happened. But one of the soldiers, and this is John 19:34, and I'm reading now. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it by record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. And John noted something that no one else noted. Chances are he was closer to the cross than any other of the apostles. And he noted that when that soldier pushed the spear in the side of Christ, that there came out blood and water, and not just one element, but both elements. Now, John makes application of that. He had a great deal to say about it. He emphasized it. Now he comes back to it here, and he says here he came by water. Now, what water speaks of what? It speaks of the Word of God. And that's what the Lord Jesus meant, that you must be born of water and of the Word. The water is the living Word applied by the Spirit of God. So that here is the one that came by water. The Word of God that the Spirit of God uses. And blood is by the death of Christ. Even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness because the Spirit is truth. Now, it's the Spirit that can make these things live. And may I make this rather startling statement. The Lord Jesus told the disciples between his death and resurrection and the day of Pentecost to tarry in Jerusalem and to do nothing. They were not to witness. Why? They can't witness without the Holy Spirit. And therefore, my friend, it is essential if anyone is to be saved today, not only that Christ died 1,900 years ago, but that the Spirit of God worked today in hearts and lives. That's one of the reasons we read letters, is to show that the Word of God here that's taken by the Spirit of God can apply the blood of Christ to hearts and lives. Christ died for our sins, but the Spirit of God has to make that real to us. That makes this a very important chapter. Only the Spirit of God can make the death of Christ real to you, and only the Spirit of God can make the resurrection of Christ real to you. And then we have verse 7, and may I say that it looks as if we have three more witnesses added here that are in heaven. And I read verse 7, "...for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit." And these three are one. Now, that verse actually is not in the better manuscripts. I have here the very scholarly presentation presented by the late Dr. A.T. Robertson, who was, I think, one of the greatest Greek scholars that ever lived. 
And I heard him lecture when I was a student in seminary, and he probably knew more Greek than anybody that has lived in our generation. He lectured on the epistle to the Romans, and he got up the first day to lecture, and he had a great big sheaf of notes there on Romans. And he didn't even look up at the student body. He just was straightening out those notes there. And then he looked up and said, I don't see how the apostle Paul ever wrote the epistle to the Romans without my notes. And, of course, everybody roared at that. Well, he was a great Greek scholar, and he makes the statement that verse 7 is not in the better manuscripts, and that it was probably put in there by some scribe in the margin, and that you must remember that the Bible at first was handwritten. It was not printed. It was not until Gutenberg invented the printing press, and the first book printed was the Bible, but that was a long ways off from John and his day. So that some scribe evidently put what we have as verse 7 in the margin, and then later on another scribe would come along and include it in the text. Now, there's nothing wrong with it. The only thing is, I think we need to recognize it's not in the better manuscripts, and if we want to be scholarly, and if we today want to be accurate and be able to defend the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible, we need to know these things. And therefore, since it doesn't add anything to the text at all, it was probably just put in the margin there, My feeling is that we should just bypass it and come to verse 8 and consider it. In other words, there are not six witnesses that are presented here, and the three in heaven would do us very little good down here on earth. It's the three witnesses on earth that we are concerned about, because the three witnesses in heaven would not have very much bearing on us today. But the three on earth have a direct bearing, and that's the point that I'm trying to emphasize. Now, will you notice verse 8? And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree in one. Now, what is the agreement that they have here? Well, they agree in one purpose, that is, of presenting Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world because he shed his blood upon Calvary and paid the penalty for our sins. Therefore, he says here that there are three that bear witness on earth, and those three are right here right now, friends. The Holy Spirit will take the Word of God and apply it to your heart. Now, many of you are listening to this sometime after I made the tape. I believe that the Holy Spirit is here leading right now. When you hear this, the Holy Spirit will be there to take his word and apply it to your heart. He bears record, if you please. And he is a witness. And his witness is that you might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ the Spirit and the water. Now, how are you going to find out 
Well, through the Word of God. You see, the blood of Christ delivers us from the penalty of sin. The Word of God delivers us from the defilement of sin in the world today. Now, that's my reason for being, I guess, a fellow with a one-track mind. All I emphasize on the radio and all I ever emphasize in my ministry has been the Word of God. In other words, I just have one tune that I play. I just have one message that I give. And I hope it doesn't become too monotonous. But friends, it's the Word of God It's the only thing that can clean up your life, even as a believer. And it's the only thing that will keep it clean. And that's something that's important. Now, we are living in a day when a great deal of attention is given to that. In fact, too much attention, I guess, that if you don't use a certain miracle bar of soap or certain make of soap, you probably will be out of it. You may even lose your job. And certainly all your friends are going to desert you. But if you'll use a certain brand, and it's a miracle substance, it will just clean you up and clean your clothes up and just clean up everything. It will clean up everything except what's on the inside of you. And it won't clean that up. Only the Word of God and the only miracle cleansing thing that's in the world today is the Word of God. And it can clean you up. And that's the reason we emphasize the Word of God. It can save you. Born again, not by corruptible seed, but by incorruptible, the Word of God that liveth and abideth forever. For it presents Christ who shed his blood for your sins and my sins. That's important. That's what Easter's all about. That he died for our sins. He was raised for our justification. The Word of God can keep you clean down here. Now, you can spray with every kind of a spray deodorant there is. You can rub it on. You can pour it on. And you can buy it in the giant economy size and put it in your swimming pool and jump in. And my friends, it won't clean you on the inside. Only the Word of God can keep you clean today. And that is the thing that he's emphasizing here. These three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the Spirit uses the water of the Word and applies the blood for our salvation. And these three all agree in one. That is, they want to get you saved and keep you saved. Verse 9, If we receive the witness of man... The witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. Now, we have reached a credibility gap today. I don't know about you, but many folk I talk to have reached a credibility gap between themselves and the news media and the politicians and all that are on television today. I'll be very candid with you that there are certain news commentators I won't listen to any longer. I refuse to. I know that they are doing nothing in the world but giving propaganda, that they are not giving facts, and that everything they give is biased 
and distorted and twisted for a liberal position. And apparently, they're willing actually to misinform people. They're willing to withhold facts. And today, I've got to the place, maybe you've come to it, that it doesn't make any difference about the politicians, who they are or what party they belong to. I've had no confidence. Now, we are in a place today where it's difficult to receive the witness of man. But the interesting thing is, John Q. Public swallows it hook, line, and sinker. And you can tell by the different polls that are taken, a man's influence or his popularity is determined by what the news media says about him. And that is true of any person. And the biggest frauds in the world can be built up. And Hollywood, of course, did this for years. Well, if we receive the witness of man, and most people do, they're taken in by it. If it's said over TV or if it is put into print, they believe it. Now, my friends, there are many people today that'll believe what they read and what they hear, but they won't receive the witness of God but the witness of God's greater, friends. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. And God is not giving out news on every subject today. His news is good news, and it's about his Son that died for us on the cross. That's the message. Now he says here in verse 10, "...he that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. Now, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit indwells you, and he testifies that these things are true. That is one of the great encouragement of radio, is that many people that have not seen me, and that, I guess, is a good thing, they have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. And they hear the Word of God, and they accept it, because the Spirit bears witness that they are hearing the Word of God. And that makes it quite wonderful. That's the greatest encouragement in preaching or teaching the Word of God, either from the pulpit or from radio or television or wherever it might be. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God... What does he do? He's made him a liar. When you don't believe God, friends, you add to your other sins, you make him a liar. God says, trust Christ and I'll save you. You say, well, I don't need to trust Christ. God says, you're a liar. I didn't say it. God says, you're a liar when you say that you don't need to trust Christ. That's the reason I read that letter today. This woman thought that since she's a member of the church and she's doing a lot of Good thing she's all right. She had to listen a long time before she found out she was a sinner and that she needed Christ as a Savior. Now, will you notice you make him a liar because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. Now, what is the record? Well, John's going to tell us. And this is the record. Now, what is the record? Well, here it is that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Now, that is eternal life. I have Christ. Now, it boils down to this one point. 
And if you want to get the gospel in a nutshell, and whenever you're listening to this, this is the simplest test that can be made. Listen to this. He that hath the Son hath life. Now, I didn't say he that belongs to the church. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Methodist. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a Nazarene. Belong to the church of God. I don't care what church you belong to. That doesn't mean you're saved. Nobody says, well, what does it mean to be saved? He that hath the Son hath life. The question is, do you have Christ? Is he your Savior? Are you trusting him in such a way that if God would even say to you, you must have something else, you'd turn and walk away because you'd say to him, I only trusted Christ as my Savior. My friend, if you haven't come to that point, you just haven't come anywhere at all because to be saved means you trust Christ and it means you have Christ as your Savior. He that hath the Son hath life. He's our lifeboat. He's our lifeline. He's our only hope. We're lost without him. And if we have him, we have life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Now, friends, can you make it any clearer than that? Let's forget about religion. Let's forget about this churchianity today. Let's forget about all this gimmickry that's going on today taking little courses and going through little rituals and all that sort of thing. Forget about it, my friends. The important thing is, do you have Christ? Is he your Savior? And that's the reason he's emphasized the fact that he's the Son of God. I want to say to you, he's wonderful. He's God manifest in the flesh. He's the only one that could save us. He's absolutely unique, and I don't like the word unique, but he is. He's unique. There's nothing like him. He's the only begotten Son of God. He died upon the cross because he alone could pay the penalty for your sin. And he rose again, and he's living right this moment at God's right hand for us. He's the living Christ. Do you have him today as your Savior? That's the only question you need answered. If you have him... You have life. You're saved. That's the record. Do you believe God or don't you believe God? If you don't believe him, you make him a liar. Oh, my friend, John has got this down right where you can get it. You can't miss this. The only thing right now that will keep you from coming to Christ is the sin in your life that you don't want to give up. That's the only thing in the world. That's the decision that you make. Now, friends, we've come to our final study, and we come to the very key verse of the epistle here in verse 13. Now, we have seen that John has made it very clear what it means to be saved, what it means to be a Christian. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. In other words, It's the one that he's presented here, the one who came by water and blood, the one that was the Son of God, virgin-born, God manifest in the flesh, died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the dead, and that is the gospel. And nothing else is the gospel, by the way. Now, verse 13, he says, 
These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. A twofold purpose, you see, that they might believe on the name of the Son of God. That's salvation. And that you might know that you have eternal life. Now, if you have Christ, you have life. If you believed him, a great many people say, I just want to believe that I have eternal life. The question is, who do you believe? Not what do you believe, but who do you believe? Do you believe God? you believe the record that he gave? He says, if you have the Son, you have life. Now, do you believe that? He didn't say, if you feel like it or if you've joined something, but he says, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and if you have him. And he says, that's the reason I've written this epistle to you, that you might know that you have eternal life. This is made, I think, very clear here, the purpose of his gospel. He says, many other signs truly did Jesus which are not written in this book, that is the Gospel of John, but these are written. John didn't write everything, just certain things. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that's who he is, and that believing you might have life through his name. Now, if you have the Son, you have life. Now, he wants you to know that, and you honor God when you know it. And that simply means that you're not making God a liar. You're trusting him. It's not how much faith you got or how you feel about it. It's whether you've trusted Christ or not. That's all important. Now, this does something for our Christian life. Verse 14, And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. Now, it gives confidence in prayer, you see. And believe me, we need confidence in prayer. And it must be according to the will of God. And if you and I are in fellowship with him, walking with him, then our prayer would be along that line, of course. It would be for God's will in our lives. George Muller put it like this. He says, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying hold of his willingness. That is the important thing. It's not trying to get God to do something that he's reluctant to do. But prayer is when you and I are thinking his thoughts after him. And that is the thing that gives us confidence when we go to God in prayer. Now he goes on here and he says, this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. You can be sure of one thing, that he not only hears, but he answers. God will hear the prayers of his children, but he doesn't always answer them. And what it means here that we have a confidence that he will answer it according to the way we prayed because we're in his will. Now, verse 15 And if we know that he hear us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Now, that is a wonderful place to come to, to know that you and I have a heavenly Father. 
we're in fellowship with him, that we're going to pray, not selfishly, or if we regard sin in our lives, or there can be other hindrances to prayer. But when we're walking in fellowship with him, we can be sure of one thing, that if we're following him, that what we ask, we can have confidence that he will hear and answer the prayer. Now, we come to a statement here that's very important, I think, for us to understand. My feeling is that this will clear up a great deal of misunderstanding, and it also moves into this same area that we've been talking about here of assurance of salvation and of having confidence. That word confidence, I probably should have called your attention to it, actually means boldness. This is the boldness. In other words, it gives boldness in prayer to the child of God. It's not coming, you know, with mistrust or in a begging attitude, but coming with boldness to ask that God's will actually be done. Now, we come to a verse that is really one that's certainly been misunderstood and misconstrued. Verse 16 it is, If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. Now, this refers to physical death. It has no reference to spiritual death at all, because the child of God has eternal life. And we're talking now about not that, but a physical death. In other words, what he's saying here is this. Believers can commit a sin for which the heavenly Father will call them home. That is, he'll remove them from this life physically because they may be disgracing him. Now let's look at some that committed a sin actually under death. Moses and Aaron back in the Old Testament, they committed a sin unto death. You will recall that Moses got angry when the children of Israel kept begging for water, and he smote the rock there twice. Somebody said he just should have smitten it once. He shouldn't have even touched that rock. It had already been smitten once before, and he should rest upon that, you see. And that was to be an example and a type of Christ, because Paul said, and that rock which followed them was Christ. And he only died once. And Moses spoiled the type, really, by doing what he did. And God said, Because ye believe me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. That's in Numbers, the 20th chapter, at verse 12. Now, there was for this man Moses a restoration that he could continue leading. But he began to plead with God, you know, to forgive him and to permit him to enter the land. But the Lord told him, though I've restored you to your place of leadership, 
but you're not going to enter the land. And when he kept after the Lord, the Lord said to him, Speak no more unto me of this matter. In other words, Moses and Aaron both had sinned a sin unto death. And it was physical death that they had committed. Now you have another example of that when you come to the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira, they were those that were in the early church. They were guilty, actually, of a lie. You might say, well, they repented, didn't they? Yes, after they were caught. But they didn't repent because of what they had done. They repented because they were caught. They were willing to give a false impression to the early church. They were willing to live a lie. And God took them because of that and removed them from this earthly scene. And you have another incident of that. It's mentioned over in 1 Corinthians. Paul could say to them they had been actually getting drunk, some of them, at the Lord's Supper. And they were missing the meaning of it altogether. And Paul could write to them in 1 Corinthians 11:30, "...for this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep." That is, they were dead. Many of you are dead. And what he's saying here, they committed a sin unto death. Now, somebody's going to say then, what is that sin unto death? Well, to begin with, it's not an unpardonable sin. It's just physical death not spiritual death. These people are God's children. He would never have taken them home if they hadn't been his children. The Lord doesn't whip the devil's children. He only whips his own. And when his children sin, uh, sin unto death, somebody then says, well, what is it? What is it specifically? Well, for Moses and Aaron, it was one thing. They lost their temper. They destroyed a type actually, of the Lord Jesus. And Ananias and Sapphira, they were living like hypocrites. And we find that in the city of Corinth, why there were believers there that were getting drunk disorderly at the Lord's table. And some of them had died. They had committed the sin unto death. So it's no one thing specifically. And I have a notion that For you, it would be different than it would be for me. But I'm of the opinion that every believer is capable of committing the sin unto death, whatever it is for them. You can go on in sin, and God will remove you from the sin. Now, that doesn't mean that every Christian that dies has committed sin. But it's possible to do that. I think Absalom committed it. I'm of the opinion that Absalom was really a child of God. But he led a rebellion against his father. And I have noticed this. I've watched this over a period of years. Troublemakers in the church. I have watched how God has dealt with them. And may I say that I've seen him not only remove them by death, but I've also seen him set them aside so that they have no more use in the service of God at all. I believe that it's possible to commit the sin under death. And that's not spiritual death. It's just that God's calling a child home that has committed a sin. 
Now, I can illustrate that. Here is a mother that has a little boy. It's her little angel child, of course, little Willie, and he's just a fine little fella. And next door, though, there lives a little brat, the age of her little angel, and they play together out in the backyard. Well, one day she's working in the kitchen, and she hears that little brat next door yelling at the top of his voice, and she rushes to the door, and she looks out, and there is her precious little angel on top of the little brat next door, just beating the stuffing out of him. And she says, Willie, you're going to have to come in the house if you don't act right, if you are not nice to the little boy next door. And he says, yes, Mama, I'll be better. And she says, well, if you're not, I'm going to have to bring you in the house. Well, she goes back in and she starts working in the kitchen again. And about 30 minutes or an hour goes by and again she hears that familiar cry of the little brat next door. And she goes to the door and that familiar sight greets her. Her little precious angel is on top of the brat next door, just beating the stuffing out of him. And she said, Willie, come in the house. He said, I don't want to come in the house. She said, I said that if you did that again, you'd have to come in the house. And he said, I don't want to come in the house. And he balks. Well, what does she do? She goes out there and gets him by the hand. And her precious little angel yelling at the top of his voice, she just takes him in the house. He had to come in. Now, he's still her... Well, he may not be a precious little angel, but he's her son. And that never was disturbed, but he can no longer play outside. And I think that a child of God can go on down here disgracing the Lord. And the Lord will either set them aside or else they are taken home by death. And God doesn't mind doing that. He, I think, does it in many instances. Now, he goes on here in verse 17. All unrighteousness is sin. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. Now, I'm of the opinion that there are many of us that are alive today. We sin, but we didn't sin a sin unto death. We did something that was wrong. It was unrighteous, but he didn't take us home. If he was doing that, I'd been taken home a long time ago. But now notice verse 18. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. Now, you and I, as we've seen before in this epistle, have two natures, an old nature and a new nature. And that new nature will not sin, never sin. That nature has a desire for God and the things of God. That old nature will sin, and it's because of that. But he that's begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. And may I say, this is another verse that makes me believe that the child of God can never be demon-possessed. Now, I think that you can be oppressed by demons. I think Christians can get into that place where they oppress, but never possessed by a demon. It'd be impossible for a child of God to do that. Why? Because greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And the Holy Spirit would not be dwelling in there. 
where a demon was. Even the pigs went down into the water when the demons were put in them, you must remember. And I don't think a child of God could be that. Now, verse 19, "...and we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness." Now, I have a sermon that I have preached on several occasions when the devil puts the baby to sleep. And this is the verse that I use. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth really asleep in the arms of the wicked one. Not in wickedness, but in the arms of the wicked one. In other words, the devil has got the world asleep. And the devil is saying to McGee on the Through the Bible radio, he says, Hush, you're waking people up, and we don't want to do that. They're very comfortable. Many people in their churches, they're dead in trespasses and sins, and we don't want to wake them up. Let's let them alone. And that's the thing that disturbs the devil. But you and I are living in a world that is asleep in the arms of the wicked one. And believe me, when you look around you today, you must agree with that. Now he says, and we know that the Son of God is come, and he hath given us an understanding that we may know him, that is true, and we are in him, that is true. Even in his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God in eternal life. Friends, that's the reason Christianity is not a religion. It's a person. That person is Christ. And if you have him, you have salvation. And it's not a religion. And then he concludes, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from these things of the world that take your time and attention. Covetousness is idolatry. Other things are idolatry. Many people are worshiping many things in this wicked world we're in today. And there's nothing in the world but idols. Keep yourself from idols. I'll see you next time my beloved.